Happy birthday. I, uh, I get the question um, a lot from friends outside of the city or um, churches that know what we're doing, like outside that are invested in what we're doing here. I get the question all the time, um, so how's it going? And it's such a tough question to answer succinctly. And I usually say it this way. Um, it is, it has been harder than I thought it would be. And that's usually uh, the way that I start because it has been. There's been, uh, I thought it was going to have to require a lot of work, but it's probably been harder than I thought it would be. And then I follow it up with this, and this is not a platitude, not like um, just something I say to like make myself feel better. I then say, and I genuinely mean this, it is better than I thought it would be. It has been, and, and I had pretty high expectations. I didn't come in with like a neutral feeling on how this would go. Like I thought this was going to be awesome, and it actually has turned out to be better than I thought it would be. Jesus has done greater things than I thought he could do. He's been more faithful than I thought he could be. He has been kinder than I thought he could be to a community. The people that have gathered in this church are even cooler than I thought they could be. Um, it has genuinely been better than I thought it would be. Um, God has really, really blessed our church, and also, we're turning two today if you're brand new. Uh, that's, that's why the like weird, awkward, dramatic lead-in, um, because we get to celebrate that God has sustained a church for two whole years, and um, my name's Chris. If you are new, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I, uh, along with a team of other people, helped start this church two years ago, and uh, it's been the most incredible ride, and we started it uh, really around one idea, or one, exactly, one person, and, uh, and it's, we want to be all about Jesus, and again, I don't want to say things that just sound like a Christian platitude or anything, but like, that's truly why we started this church, is we wanted to see a, a community in the urban core of Cincinnati be all about Jesus, and we said, um, I think that there's probably four pillars, four values that we could do or pursue to, to be all about who he is. And so uh, if you're new here, we talk about these a lot, but we are going after family and mission. We want to be about community, but like authentic community that's not just here, but it's going there. Uh, we don't want to get burnt out by the mission, and so we want to do that. We want to pursue Jesus um, with people that we love and trust, and we've really pursued this idea of what does it look like to be authentic family, but what's it look like to do that together, not just for the sake of not being lonely anymore, but for the sake of bringing Jesus glory. We talk about family and mission, and then we talk about these two other words, presence and formation, and in a lot of churches, it feels like a tension that you've got a hold of, like, it's either this or that, and, uh, and we believe that God's presence changes everything. In a moment, God's presence can change everything and anything. We are big believers that God is still on the move, and we're signing up for the like long, slow, uh, meticulous following of him. So we believe in spiritual gifts, and we believe in the practices of Jesus. We want to go after the presence of God and being formed into his image, and it's a tension that we're really trying to hold well. And so we talk all the time about these four values. Again, if you're new, you'll hear all about them if you return family mission, presence, formation. And today, we've been in kind of a long journey uh, that's not going to end until December called Wholehearted, and I'll talk more about that next week. But uh, in the midst of Wholehearted, we've had these small little series that we've gone after different aspects of our heart. And today is the, the beginning of a series, the series that I've been most excited about since we started this whole thing. And, uh, and it's on Jesus. I know. 
It's not super creative. We ran out of creative juices around like mid-September. And, uh, but here's why, and it's always all about Jesus, but today and for the next five weeks, we're going to dig really deep into like who really was he? Was he Jewish? Was he Christian? Like what are some of the things about Jesus that like we don't know? Why is he important? Which we maybe know the answer, especially if we grew up in church, but like seriously, why was he important? What was the deal with his death? The resurrection seems like a big deal. Why was that a big deal? And is he worth following is basically the question we want to get to. Is this guy worth following? So who is Jesus? Is he worth following? What's the significance? And so we're going to start in um, the first gospel that was written. So the earliest gospel was written by a guy named John Mark, but we've called it Mark. And what's different about John Mark than like Matthew or the gospel of John is those two were written by disciples of Jesus' followers. John Mark was loosely associated with him, but he wasn't one of the 12. But what's interesting about Mark's gospel is uh, almost every scholar agrees that Mark got his uh, material not from following Jesus, but from interviewing Peter. And so, and we know that Peter had a pretty like front row seat at who Jesus was. And so we get to get like some of the glimpses of what Peter would have said would have been important. Here, if you're going to write a biography on this guy, here's what you've got to know. And so we're going to believe that the first and the last thing that Mark said in his gospel are some kind of a summary. And so Mark 1.1 says this, this is uh, I imagine Peter sitting down with John Mark and saying, look, if you're going to write anything, you've got to make sure you start with this, because this is the most important thing about this guy. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He said, if you're going to write about anything, you've got to get that. You've got to talk about how he was the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word for Christ or anointed one. And then I want you to make sure that you include, because this is the craziest part about him, I want you to include that he was the Son of God. This is what Peter would have said was important about him. And you know that uh, in Hebrew writing, or really in any writing, if you begin and end with the same thing, you can start to assume that that's the thesis of the whole work. And so when we go to the end of Mark, Mark 15, the same thing is written down. But it wasn't by Peter, it wasn't by uh, John Mark, it wasn't by any of the disciples. It was by a Roman centurion that after witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus and watching how he interacted with people as he got hung on a cross and as he gave up his life, a Roman centurion looks at how the whole sky went dark and everything that was happening, and here's what the centurion said, not a disciple, not a believer, a Roman pagan centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. And so uh, Mark, he says, okay, we're going to start and we're going to end with these two thoughts. Surely this man is the son of God. And so if we're going to dig into who Jesus is, we're going to uh, take a cue from Mark and take a cue from Peter and say, oh, this must be important because it begins and ends saying this is the Son of God. And it goes on in Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. starts quoting some Old Testament stuff. He says, as is written in the Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice calling, uh, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And... Uh, if you're like the one or two people reading a paper Bible here, you might see like little letters next to the, those verses, or more than likely you're reading like on the YouVersion app and you see the three dots. That's referring back to not New Testament writings, but Mark is writing and he quotes Old Testament. He says, uh, here's what Isaiah 40 said, here's what Malachi 3 said. And so Mark starts by talking about the good news of Jesus by actually referring back to the Old Testament. He doesn't start with the news, and sometimes this is what I grew up with, with well-meaning Christians around me. The news of the, the good news starts with, I'm a sinner and I've got to get out of hell. And it's not untrue. It's just not the complete story. Mark says, look, if we're going to start writing about the good news, the good news doesn't start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It starts back in the Old Testament. And if the Bible is the good news of God, 
then we should probably read more than just the last quarter of it. Amen? So that means, if you've been around a while, you know what this is going to be. That means that we're going to talk about the New Testament. We're going to talk about Jesus, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start all the way back at the beginning. If you're new here, we say this phrase just so I make sure you don't fall asleep about seven minutes from now when you're deep in Old Testament prophecies. Relevance is coming. We will get to the New Testament, I promise you. I promise you, but not before we wade through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 40, and Malachi 3. It is a good morning to have a birthday. So relevance is coming. We're going to start not back in Genesis 3 because, guys, remember, the good news of the gospel isn't I'm a sinner and I've got to get out of hell. The good news of the gospel doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1 with creation, Genesis 1, 26. Here we go. Set your clock 10 minutes till relevance. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. He uses kingly language here. If you're reading this as a first century Jew or even someone that would have been around Moses when he was penning these words, he uses language that says image and likeness. And this is royal language. This is kingly language because a king in that time would have a palace and a temple and then a garden. And the way the king would remind you who's in charge is not just by sitting on a throne, but he would put his image or his likeness all over the garden. And it reminded you by the statue of the king or the, the bust of the head of the king that this is who's in charge. Remember, I'm in charge. And so what's so interesting that God does, he sits on a throne and he creates a garden and he puts his image and his likeness all around a garden, but he doesn't put statues of himself. He, it seems like he puts us in there. Isn't that interesting? The good news of God starts by him saying, I'm delegating some of my kingly authority to you. And I know we're all familiar with Near Eastern cosmology. You were probably studying it this week. But just in case you weren't, this, this would have been deeply steeped in Jewish tradition or of Jewish thought of, oh, this, this means that we have some delegated authority from the king. Not a king, but the king of kings. And God sets in a garden his image and his likeness. And he says, I'm going to give you a job description. I'm, I'm going to have you subdue the earth. And subdue doesn't mean to strip mine or pollute, but it means to steward what God has created. I want you to take chaos and I want you to bring it into order. It's the first command that Jesus gives or that God gives us, which is, I want you, I want you to take this and I want to give you some of my authority and I want you to do something with it. It's a vocation. It's a kingly vocation that God delegates some of that to us. Are you following? So God gives us this job description, and then, um, and maybe you know the answer to this, but uh, how well did they do? Uh, they didn't do so well. Like two chapters later, flip your next page, and uh, Adam and Eve fall, and they don't exactly do what they were supposed to do. And so sin enters the world, and that's so much of the problem. But that's okay because God says, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to take another man and another woman, and I'm going to give them a job description. It's going to look eerily like the first one. And so you knew we'd get there. We're going to go to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, 2 through 3. And um, we're going to talk, as we always do, about the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, thank you. And if you're new here, again, I don't really like this portion of Scripture, but everyone keeps begging me, can we please talk about the Abrahamic covenant again? I just love it when you talk about the Abrahamic covenant, and I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Because so much of the New Testament is an outworking of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God makes a promise to Abram and Sarah. 2 and 3 say, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation, and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse whoever curses you. Uh, And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That last part is the key to the promise. God says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants to become a great nation. There's going to be all kinds of blessing. But the third part is, I'm not just going to bless your nation, although that's how it's going to start. I'm going to bless all nations through you. And again, I'll ask this question a few times, but how well do they do? It's a mixed bag. They do okay for a while, and then the nation explodes, and they get taken into captivity, and God sends a rescuer named Moses and says, I want you to bring my people out. And as he brings his people out, he feels like he needs to remind them of the ways that they've been delegated authority. And so he talks to Moses, and he gives them a job description, again, eerily similar to the first one. And he says this in Exodus 19.6, part of what he's saying is he's giving Israel, his chosen people, the instrument with which he's going to walk again among us. He says, um, and you, Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests, my holy nation. So among other things that God says, he says, I want to remind you who you are. You are a kingdom of priests. There is kingly delegation that I've given to you because my hope, my my plan is that I will one day not just be up here delegating down there, but I'm going to walk in flesh among you again in the garden like we started this whole thing. This is my plan. I'm going to give you this job description. And again, I'll ask the question, how well did they do? This one's not even a mixed bag. Forty days later, this same group of people are sacrificing to a golden calf. Not so great. And we keep messing up the plan. And this, this is the point of the story where if I'm God, praise God I'm not, that's three strikes and you're out. Like that's three times that God's tried to do this thing and he's given commands and covenants and three times that we've kind of messed it up. But God says, no, I'm I'm still in this for the long haul. And even amidst a rebellious people that keep turning their back towards God, God keeps saying, I'm, I'm coming after you because I've got a plan that I will accomplish. I will walk among you again. And Israel says, okay, if we're going to be like other nations, which was never the plan, then we need a king. And so they ask for a king, and the first king doesn't do so well. And the second king, again, is a mixed bag. It's King David, if you've heard of him. And one of the interesting things about King David, and we've read this a few times before, is in 2 Samuel 7, uh, he starts to, God starts to give David some promises. And one of the promises, he says, is your throne will go forever. Your kingdom will be established forever. And this is more than just a, hey, I love the way that your bloodline's doing because that wasn't going well. But he says, I'm going to actually establish the bloodline through you forever. I will one day walk among you again, and I'm going to do it through this kingly line. And again, let's ask the question, how well did they do? And it's not well. It's really not well. Like uh, about 100 years later, um, one of the kingdoms, the kingdom splits. There's a civil war um, less than 100 years later because they can't get along and the kingdom splits. And within 100 years of the split, both Israel and Judah are now in captivity and in exile to pagan nations because they were not obedient to God. And it says in Ezekiel, almost as, as an illustration, that God's presence now has even left the temple. This is the lowest, I believe, that we've been at this point. It's the low, because God's presence, his promise has now left the temple. And he says... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing this happen. I'm having a hard time getting my accomplishments done. And so now the people of Israel, and I want you to imagine this. The people of Israel are asking this question over and over again. When, when will God dwell among us? Now that God's chosen instrument, Israel, has fallen, when or how? How is this even possible that God will dwell among us again? And in the midst of the whole Old Testament, which is a lot of correction, and mistakes, there are some glimpses of God maybe possibly 
doing it. There's these prophetic glimpses that we see, and in Isaiah 40, that's one of them. And if you read the, um, the book of Isaiah, you know that 39 chapters is just like straight depression and correction and rebuke. And what's so interesting about Isaiah is you can feel in a moment, chapter 40, everything turns. It's a lot of correction and rebuke, and then it's almost like God says, but I am still coming. Isaiah 40, and we read some of this in Mark, Isaiah 40, 1 through 3 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We've read this, a voice calling, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a desert highway for our God. And what a king would do before he went to a, a, a new town is he would send ahead a road delegation that made the mountains low and the valleys high and made the road smooth in preparation for a king that was coming. And Isaiah says, look, actually, I think that this thing's still happening. I can see it in the spirit. There's going to come. And, and when he comes, when God comes to dwell among us again, we need to make sure we're ready. We need to get ready the road that the king is come, going to come before us. And then you flip a few other prophetic books towards the very end of the Old Testament. It's really the last picture we see of the Old Covenant. It's the book of Malachi. In Malachi 3, we're hoping that finally Malachi has some more insight on when this is going to happen and who it's going to be. And he says this in Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. That's good news because the Lord had not been in the temple. The presence had been uh, shifted and shattered. He said, I'm going to come back to the temple the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then you flip to the next page, it's Malachi 4, and you flip to the next page and it's blank in your Bible because that's the end of the Old Testament because there is no resolution. There's no resolution. And, and I want you to imagine it not taking 10 minutes of recap, but I want you to imagine the drama that you would have felt as a first century Jewish boy or girl steeped in more prophecies and scriptures than this saying, when is he going to come? In the Old Testament, it ends not with God saying, how am I going to get these people into heaven? But it ends with the people of God saying, how will we have God come and dwell among us again? How will we get back to the way that it's supposed to be? When will this little project, when will this Adam project that God started in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, in Genesis 12, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, and Isaiah 40, and Malachi 3, when will this project come to completion? And you can feel the tension building. And you can feel that Jews everywhere and the nations of the earth, even though they wouldn't have put language to this, you can feel that they are longing for something more than what they have. And there's been promises, but there's no resolution. And you flip that page and it's 400 years of silence. And I want you to imagine now and put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jewish boy or girl and somebody hands you a scroll and you've been longing and waiting for the consolation of Israel and for God to come and dwell among us again. And somebody hands you a scroll and says, look, you need to read this. You need to read this because um, I have a friend who has a friend. His name is John Mark. And he wrote this, and, and he seems to be thinking that, that the one has come. Like the one that we've been longing for, the Isaiah 40, the, the Malachi 3. That guy, it says that he's coming. So you start reading, and you open the scroll of Mark, and you see that topic line, and you're immediately intrigued. And you can't wait to get to finally meeting this guy. And so the first words that this man says that's recorded in the book of Mark is Mark 1.15. You get to this point and you just stop. Because Jesus says this, the time has come. What time? The time of Isaiah, the time of Malachi, the time of Genesis 12. That time has come. 
And then Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The time for Israel's hope and Israel's hunger to be fulfilled. And maybe this will be the time that God doesn't send a a delegate or a prophet, but this is the time maybe God actually comes himself. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that word near isn't a timing phrase. It's not he's coming soon, like in a few years or in a few minutes. That word near is a spatial word. He says the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come close. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? That Jesus makes this promise 2,000 years ago. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come close. And we never see Jesus say this. I just came so that I can get people into heaven. But instead he says, no, I came to get the kingdom of God down to here. I came to bring heaven to here. I'm not just interested in getting you up there. I'm interested in this down here. And if you'll pick up the mantle that my father gave you all those years ago to be kingly delegates of this mission, then I'd love to invite you to do that again and you read to the next verse and the verse after that and you get to mark 1 17 just two verses later when jesus gives his first invitation to a few fishermen but actually it's an invitation to you and to me he says come follow me and jesus gives this invitation of discipleship and you probably know this but if you want to learn to cook you need to follow a cook you need to be around someone that's good at cooking if you want to get better at basketball you need to be around someone that's good at basketball if you want to learn web design you need to be around or follow someone that is good at web design but if you want to be a part of the greatest revolution that's ever taken place on the planet then you need to follow Jesus that's the invitation that he gives us and so the invitation isn't we got to get some more information and know more about him so that means the end of church or the end of following Jesus isn't a Sunday morning this is just the spark It's the Monday through Saturday where the rubber hits the road where God says, follow my son. And so what we're doing, it's all just intro, what we're doing over the next five weeks is evaluating this question, come follow me. And what does it look like to come follow me? And the idea, the big phrase around this series is that if we want to follow him, we have to see him clearly. So we're trying to see God more clearly, but we don't want to just see him more clearly so that we can win Bible trivia. We want to see him more clearly so that we can follow him more fully. So we come here so that we can learn and worship and hear testimonies, not so that's the end of our following of Jesus, but that's just the beginning. And so we're going to evaluate a few characteristics of Jesus and say, okay, what does it really mean to follow him? What are some of the deeper characteristics and qualities of this man that would beckon us to follow him? Is anybody else excited or in it with me? This is what we're going to do. We're all about following Jesus. And there's no better man to celebrate our two-year anniversary than saying we want to be about this guy. And when we started this church um, a couple years ago, we, um, and this is sort of the culture sometimes of church planting world. I know not all of us have like been in that world before, but usually a church planter comes in and they're like, I'm going to do it all differently. Everything's going to be new. Ah, the the old way of church is gone. Everything we're going to do is new. And that sounds exhausting. Because not everything's broken. And, uh, And I think, I hope our team took a pretty humble approach saying some things are okay, but some things we will do differently. The primary thing we said we're going to do differently is, uh, and we built this church around a few different phrases, but we said this phrase. We said that we're going to be a church that has two front doors. It's the, it's probably the most unique phrase that we came up with and we didn't just come up with it like oh that sounds cool and that'll 
work in our little church planting pitch, but we said it because it seemed like in Scripture, the church that we wanted to model ourselves after, that's what they were doing. Acts 5.42, which is probably the verse that best describes the strategy of this church, says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so if we're talking about being like the early church, which everybody wants to be like the early church, I just wish we were more like the church of Acts. I would just wish that we could do the things that they were doing. I wish my church reflected how Acts 2 was. And, and so do I. And so a very simple uh, invitation is if we want what they had, we have to do what they did. And if we're looking at Acts 5.42, it says that day after day, so there was a frequency to their gathering. Doesn't mean we do seven Sunday services. It means there's a frequency to us bumping into each other. Day after day, they were doing it. But then there was this dichotomy of gathering that's so interesting. It's so interesting because I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, but it's right there. It says that they were gathering in the temple courts and from house to house. Day after day, temple courts, house to house, temple courts, house to house. Big, small, big, small. Teaching prayer, teaching prayer. And it was the rhythm of the early church. And so we said, we want to be that kind of church. We want to be a church with two equal and different front doors. What would it look like to have the Sunday morning not be the preeminent thing, but what would it look like if church functioned in two different places, one in a large room like this, a temple court kind of setting, and then house to house? Because there are functions of the church that frankly are better in a room like this. But then there are functions of the church that are just better in a living room. And it wasn't until the Reformation that the pulpit became the center of the church. Before the pulpit was the center, it was the table. And so what would it look like if the pulpit and the table both mattered? What would it look like if corporate worship and conversation around the church or around a dining room table or around a living room both mattered equally? And so uh, if there's anything we've done most differently from other churches, we've said small groups aren't the place that you go when you're really serious about God. No, this is an equal church setting to our Sunday morning. And, uh, and so now I'm just going to go into my shameless plug because there's no way I can say what I'm going to say without like just being really clear. We've got to be in house groups. We're starting our house groups again. And if you've never been in a house group, but you've been coming to this place, um, I have good news for you. You have been experiencing exactly one half of what this church has to offer. There's more. Actually, there's probably a better front. There's like 51% available because I think we do Sunday mornings well, but I think we do house groups exceptionally, exceptionally well. And so we are a church with two front doors. We're modeling out of the Church of Acts because we want the pulpit and the table to both be equal. We want worship and conversations to be equal in our church. And so what's going to happen right now is you can actually, I'm going to give you permission for like the next 30 seconds, if you're not in a house group, to stop listening to me and watch the like scrolling pictures of house groups. And this would be the time you can take a picture or write down information and say, oh, I wonder what house group I'm going to try this week. And actually, my encouragement would be that you would say, what two, if I've never been in one, what two house groups am I, I going to try this week so that I can commit to them for the next 10 weeks after that? And, uh, and the reason we do that, we go for 10 weeks and then we take a break, but I want you to ask the question, especially if you've not been in one. If you've been in one, then uh, they're restarting again, praise God. We've taken like a seven-week break, which has been long. Um, we're starting our house groups again but if you've been here just on a Sunday morning, or maybe this is your first time, I'm going to tell you, this is good. This is probably equally good, if not better. And we are all about getting in a house group. So after service today, immediately after service, down at the Connect table, Mandy, who's our house group leader, Brandon, and Caitlin are all going to be there. And all they want to do this morning, their only goal in life, or at least for the next two hours, is to help you <laughs> figure out what house group 
best fits your family, your schedule, um, but we really, really believe this is an equal part to what we're doing, and we want everybody, everybody that calls this place home to not just be here on a Sunday, but to be here also in a living room, and, and that's our dream. Um, about uh, 13 years ago, there was another dream that was birthed. It was uh, a dream that was in a dorm room, Michael Swihart's dorm room at Indiana University in Bloomington, and um, it was a dream, and I remember being there as a sophomore in college, looking around, and I can see Michael and Rob and Mitch and TJ, and um, I remember starting a dream, some of us not even really following Jesus fully at the time, and saying, I wonder what it would be like if we started a church. And not every iteration of a dream is perfect, and that certainly was not one. It was a bunch of finance majors saying, we should buy all the real estate in the city and start a bunch of businesses, and maybe we'll IPO, and oh yeah, Jesus. It wasn't a church I would want to go to now. But there was a dream that was started in a dorm room that continued after a dorm room, and the, the team started to form, and vision started to be gathered, and I remember right as soon as we graduated college, we did a retreat, um, literally went into the woods and prayed about this one-day church, and there's a picture from that retreat of the four of us that went there. It's myself, Rob, Mitch, myself, and Tyler. And I remember, um, well, and I know what you're thinking, Chris, you've really put on a lot of muscle. And... Uh, <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's super kind. And, uh, and so we got away at a cabin, and we started dreaming. And, uh, and everybody that's started this church has their own version or own story from the dream. I can only tell you mine, but mine led Catherine and I to Las Vegas, um, where we uh, thought it would be a good idea for me to work for a church before we started one. And uh, we said, well, we'll be there for like a year. And two years in, a crazy thing happened. I became the pastor of the church. It was insane. It was, it was silly. I was 26, and... And, uh, but here's what I did. I called these three guys, and I said, guys, you need to come to Vegas now. And they came like a couple months later, and I said, look, I don't think we have to plant a church anymore. I've heard it's hard. We should just all come here. You guys should all just move to Vegas. And, and everybody was open to the idea, and so we started praying. Is it planting a church? Is it coming to Vegas? And I remember uh, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday night, the last time that we were together praying in Catherine and I's little apartment in Las Vegas, we felt the Lord say this. Uh, no, you're still starting a church but it's, it's going to be near your people, your people. And we knew instinctively that that was the Midwest. And, um, and so that led to a road trip uh, about a year later where we were going through a bunch of cities. And I remember we came here not because we really thought it would be Cincinnati. We thought it would be Chicago or Nashville or Indianapolis. And we came here simply because we had a free basement to stay. Thank you, Snyders. And, uh, and something happened here. We were here, and all of us, our hearts started to be stirred in different ways. But I can tell you, again, my story. I went to a coffee shop. We all went to a coffee shop because they said, hey, you've got to go to this new neighborhood. It's like up and coming. It's called Over the Rhine. And we're like, whatever. Sounds good. So we go to Over the Rhine at this new coffee shop that was called Coffee Emporium. And I remember as soon as I stepped out of Coffee Emporium, I told the Lord, I think I could give my life to this city. It was shocking to me. I thought it was going to be Indianapolis, maybe Nashville, maybe Chicago. But something was stirring for our 24 hours in Cincinnati. And I know my story was I took a step outside and I said, I think I could give my life to this city. It all started with the dream. And that's just my version of the dream. And I remember we drove to Louisville, which was never going to be it. And then Nashville and Catherine and I, no offense, so sorry. It was only because Cincinnati captured our hearts so much. It didn't stand a chance. And Catherine and I got on a plane in Nashville, and uh, 
she opened up the Southwest magazine to go back to Cincinnati or go back to Las Vegas. And open, the first page she opened to was a full spread of not the city of Cincinnati, but a new neighborhood that was up and coming called Over the Rhine. The end of our church planting vision road trip. And so again, everybody has their own version of a dream or a story. It wasn't just my dream that started this church. It was the dreams of Jalen and Josh and Abby and Megan and Tyler and Ben and Mandy and Catherine that chose to come to this place. And then all the others that started to gather after that. It was each one of their dreams. And the dream was morphed and clarified, but it always centered around one question. From the dorm room to two years ago, to even today. Is it possible? Is it possible to have an authentic community, like really authentic, of people that we love and trust? Is it possible to make friends that feel like family? And do it not just for the sake of not being lonely, but for the sake of worshiping Jesus, who is preeminent above all things. Is it possible to do both? Because we've seen this, we've seen that. Is it possible to do this, but make it so fun because we're doing it with people that we love and we trust? Is it possible to have authentic community that is radically pursuing Jesus? And uh, the jury might still be out for some, but my answer is yes. Yes, it is possible. And so dreams started this church, and the dream was finally manifested two years ago on September 13th, 2020, when 77 people gathered in the transept. Raise your hand if you were there. It's awesome. It was like 50 people, um, 57 people from Cincinnati and 20 people from my hometown, I'm pretty sure. So. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. And uh, we eventually got the call two weeks into meeting there that we couldn't meet there for the third week, and so Tyler and I scrambled to find What's the next place we can go? Let's just go to the building closest because people are going to show up here. Nobody cares about our church yet, so we're going to meet at the Shakespeare Theater. And all of a sudden, that became home for a long time. And for the fall of 2020, about 45 people every Sunday, kids and adults, gathered in the Shakespeare Theater. And and something crazy happened in January 2021, and I can't go into all the stories of what happened because I still don't really understand it, but everything we were doing basically doubled. Our attendance on Sundays doubled. Our house groups doubled. The kids doubled. But not only that, generosity started to flow amongst our church. There started to be job promotions of 40 adults, and like seven of them got job promotions in a month. And three churches from the outside of Cincinnati said, hey, we believe in what you're doing. We want to give to what you're doing because we were just resigned to be an underfunded church plant for the rest of our life. And three churches in a matter of eight days said, we're in for this. And people started to buy houses and everything happened in January 2020. And I remember thinking the favor of God is being poured out this community. And I don't really feel like he's stopped since then. Numbers don't really tell the story, but if there's two numbers that I care most about, and this is a window into my world, it's number one, um, that no matter how big we've been, and in August, September of 2020, 2021, and now 2022, we've been about 50, 100, and 150 people on a Sunday. No matter how big we've been, we've always had 70% of our adults in house groups, which is incredible. And I don't care if we stay 150 forever, if we get to 20,000, which just is not the goal. (laughs) Certainly sounds overwhelming. But no matter how big or small we get, I always want at least 70% of our adults in house group. I'm hoping for more. We're hoping for more. And so no matter what, we've had 70% of people in house groups. 50 is usually marked as what a healthy church would be. The second number I care equally, probably actually more about, is that we've had nine baptisms in the last two years. We've seen nine people go from death to life, but... Numbers don't really accurately tell the story of City Church. It's the stories that tell the story. It's the stories of the countless physical healings 
of when people have laid hands in our church or on the streets, that people have had bodies restored. It's the countless emotional and traumatic healings that have happened in someone or addictions that have been thrown off when we've prayed those prayers. It's the stories of the gospel getting shared all throughout Newport and Price Hill and over the Rhine and all around the city of Cincinnati because we're living on mission. It's the stories of where the peanut butter and jellies that we made downstairs end up all over the streets of feeding people through our daily bread. It's not just the numbers, but it's the stories of the marriages that have been helped or the marriages that have started here. It's not just the numbers, but it's the stories of the lonely person that finally found family here. It's not just the numbers, but it's the story of the gay person that has been able to put their hope in church again. It's not just the numbers, but it's the stories of all the prayers that have been answered. It's not just the numbers, but it's the stories of all the prayers that have not yet been answered, but we're still hoping for. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of the friendships that have been started in our family room and in San Luis, Mexico. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of, actually it is the number of the amount of pounds of meat that we've grilled during Meat Fest every year. (laughs) That's not a story, that's just a number. It's not the numbers, it's the stories of all the connections that have been made at our happy hour. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of the whispers of God that we've started to hear or hear again. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of the sin that each one of us has thrown off because the presence of God is worth it. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of the times that we've encountered Jesus in such a living way that we can't go back. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of the laughs that we've had and the tears that we've shed together. It's not the numbers, but it's the stories of all the overseas work and the work next door we've done through our outreach teams. It's not the number, but it's the story of every Sunday morning at about, Sunday, or about 9.35 a.m., three the trifecta of college girls just kind of bounce up the stairs and make me so happy. It's not the numbers, it's the stories, but City Church is more than numbers. It's actually more than just stories. City Church is a community that can say, remember the time. It's a community that can say, remember the time. Remember the time that we did our first baptism and we baptized Corey Woodruff in six inches of water because we didn't know, we didn't know how long it took to fill up the kiddie pool. Remember the, remember the time that uh, a Sunday service fell on Halloween and Ben Strom thought this was the kind of church that would dress up in costumes for Halloween. So 110 people showed up in jeans and t-shirts and one man showed up in a dinosaur costume. And guys, I'll I'll never forget the time that I came to end a worship moment, and out of the left side of my eye, I saw a dinosaur receiving the presence of God. (laughs) Little arms and everything. I'll never forget that. It's not about the numbers, but it's the stories of the time we took down Nine Square in a hurricane. It's not about the numbers, it's the stories. It's, It's the time we can say that we ran a victory lap around this room with streamers. It's a the time that we had a sermon and the lights went out and Tyler preached the rest of it in the dark. It's the time that union laws forced us to somehow meet in a lobby of the Shakespeare Theater twice. It's the, st- it's the stories of all the times I've had to tell Caitlin she's not allowed to buy confetti cannons anymore. <laughs> it's not the numbers, but it's the story of watching J. Iris baptize his girlfriend Sheridan. It's the time that we almost named this church The Dwelling instead of City Church. Praise God. We could have marketed that to M. Night Shyamalan. It's not the numbers. But it's the story of the time that Everett read the liturgy on Mother's Day and made us all cry. It's not the numbers, but it's the story of the millions and millions of coffee that I had with developers last fall looking for a church building. I'm still caffeinated from it, but here we are. It's not the numbers, but City Church is a collection of stories. It's the stories of all the times that Rob's made us laugh, Megan's made us cry, and Dwight's made us think. City Church is more than numbers, but it's the stories... It's actually more than even just the stories. It's, uh, 
honestly, it's hard to explain. City Church is, it's, it's the art that Elias has made. It's the songs that Jalen has sang. It's the prayer foundation that Karen and Ann have laid. It's the roof invoice that I just paid. It's the bodies that the Spirit has slain. It's the kind heart of Lisa Wade. It's the hours and hours and hours that Catherine's heard me complain. It's the goodbyes we've said in pain. It's the walls we've had Shauna paint. It's the coffee that we've had who's our patron saint. It's the faith steps that we've all made. It's the sin we've confessed and laid. It's the tough conversations that we've had to wait. But honestly, guys, and this is what's crazy, City Church is even, it's even more than that. City Church is all for the glory of the name who took on flesh and took on pain to become the lamb that was slain on a cross that he would hang so that Satan's bell one day would be rang. But guys, guess what? Relevance is still coming. And how quickly... How quickly that victory waned when Jesus rose again and trampled on our pain. And so let's pop the metaphorical champagne. Let's commit to never being a church that's lame because following Jesus is not for the tame. And so I want you to rise up on your feet. We're going to worship. We're going to sing to the name that is above all names.